This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. And I'm Dr. John Keenan. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. This week, we are going to be discussing a very interesting article about smoking cessation for patients diagnosed with lung cancer. So, John, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. Uh, wonderful week here, and uh, it's been spending a week in patients, so it's always nice to kind of talk about some outpatient medicine. John, before we start talking about this article, has anything struck you in addiction medicine this week? You know, uh, I was wanting to talk with you about it. I have two kind of interesting patients that came to me kind of back to back. I think that most of us in addiction medicine were aware that kind of uh, decreasing barriers to care really tends to improve overdose rates, but also linkage to treatment in the community. And kind of with some de-restriction that's occurred with buprenorphine, you can obtain it now from non-wavered physicians and you just have to have an intent or declare an intent to prescribe. But also there's kind of this emergence of these telehealth services that you can log on to or make an appointment with the same day to kind of get linked into buprenorphine. And I had two patients recently come to me from those services after a period of time and kind of getting exhausted with pain out of pocket for their buprenorphine prescription. And it was interesting. They clearly had opioid dependence. They had been on both of them kind of chronic pain medication for several months or a year. And then when it came time to taper off the medication for one reason or another, they didn't enjoy the experience of withdrawal. They had no personal or legal consequences and they never had any damage to interpersonal relationships. Basically, they just didn't enjoy the sensation of of withdrawal or coming off of the medication, their opioids. So they were placed on uh, buprenorphine. I thought it was kind of interesting because they clearly don't kind of identify as the typical substance use disorder patients. And I'm not sure if you've seen trends of people being prescribed this type of way or or not. Yeah, I had a patient come to me after getting buprenorphine from a telehealth physician. And again, same story. This person only took cash and the patient was finding it very expensive. I can't claim that the quality of the care that the patient received was poor. I'm not honestly sure of the details. And the patient was doing fine when they transferred care to me. But I had one patient who came from one of those services. But it's true. I also had a patient recently, a relatively new patient who had a pretty short history with opioids. And rather than someone being supportive to help this patient taper off their opioids, she was, this patient was put on buprenorphine and remained on it for many, many years. So the amount of time on buprenorphine is more than 10 times longer the amount of time on illicit opiates initially. And that did concern me a little bit. Yeah, it's tough. I, I got to be honest with you from like a, you know, harm reduction standpoint, it's one thing. But in terms of kind of, you know, I was kind of felt somewhat kind of nebulous about how I felt about the situation, whether or not that they were kind of mislabeled or whether that was really appropriate or whether they should have just had support through a taper of some sort. But I'm sure that de-restricting some of these guidelines for prescribing is a good thing in some regards, but I'm sure that this is probably going to be a scenario you see a little bit more frequently in the future. Yeah, I mean, deregulation will allow for more buprenorphine prescribing, and I think more patients will get put on it, and hopefully more lives will be saved. But I think also some people will be put on it who maybe wouldn't have otherwise and will suffer the adverse outcomes because every medication has adverse outcomes. There's nothing that's 100% risk-free. So I'm sure we will see a rise of both as buprenorphine becomes more commonly used. How about you? Anything kind of interesting in addiction medicine with you this week? Yeah, I've been doing some hospital rounding at one of our community hospitals at St. Max's, and I had tried to get a patient an injection of deponaltrexone 
Some of you might be familiar with the brand name, which is Vivitrol, which I'm going to say just because that's what most people know it as. The patient requested the treatment. They had been alcohol-free for several days in the hospital, and I thought it would be great to get them the first injection prior to discharge. I was able to order it, which was a minor miracle, and I was pleasantly surprised that the nurse and the pharmacist were both enthusiastic about the plan, and they were up to date on how to administer it, and everyone seemed great. I told the patient, wonderful, we'll get you this injection. We'll do a follow-up in four weeks. It'll be wonderful. But then it turned out that the injection was only available on weekdays. Since it is not on the regular hospital formulary, it has to be requested through a special program with special funding. It's so special and requests for this special medication, which is totally standard for alcohol use disorder, could only be made during the week. So because it was Saturday morning, the patient was not able to get the injection. I couldn't keep a stable, symptomless patient in the hospital for multiple days waiting for this medication. So I had to discharge them with an appointment to get it as an outpatient, which I think was not the safest option. And I was frustrated. And I guess it was just another reminder for me that addiction treatment is still not given the same consideration as other treatments for other disorders. I mean, I can order all kinds of expensive and useless things for patients in the hospital. Really, there's no limit on what I'm allowed to order, except in this one area. God forbid I'm trying to put a patient on buprenorphine, methadone, naltrexone, you know, discharge them on these medications. There's so many administrative hurdles. And it just made me kind of sad, you know, this medication is not dangerous. It's not controversial. It's not complex. It's a little expensive, but it's not more expensive than a bunch of other stuff I was able to order without any pushback. So I don't know. I just was thinking about that. And it's a little bit of a downer, but I hope that in the future I can work to make these medications more accessible at all our hospitals. So John, you round at the St. Max's Mothership Teaching Hospital. Have you ever given patient deponaltrexone at discharge? Yeah, that's actually kind of disappointing because we work through that process very nicely at the uh, Mothership Hospital. So, and we can give it to patients. Often, I feel like I may be one of the two prescribers in the whole hospital, the 400 some beds that actually uses it routinely. But it's really nice to kind of link people into care that are willing to change. Certainly, hospitalization is really a time when a lot of people are reconsidering choices. They're often at a low and you can kind of help build them up. And even in my office, I I think most of us don't really like to partner with pharmaceutical companies. But I will say the maker of the I am now Trexone has been very gracious, at least working with me to give us a couple samples of that, that when patients want to start and have hit their washout period for opioids, we don't have to order it through specialty pharmacy and get that delay. Unlike buprenorphine or depot buprenorphine, the washout period really is a barrier to care with that medication. So often if people are ready to go, it's nice to have a vial to start. And like, I think this is a mutually beneficial um, arrangement. I know we often talk bad about the pharmaceutical companies, but I think it's a nice thing they do. And, you know, with the cost, I'm I'm pretty sure they're making it up somewhere else. So don't feel too bad for them either. No, and that's a great plan to have one available in your office. And I'm glad that you can do it at our teaching hospital. I think I'm going to put it on my list of projects to figure out how to make it more accessible at some of our smaller community hospitals who might not use it as much. Yeah. So, John, let's get started with this article. I can't wait to hear about it. Yeah, so this is a really interesting article about smoking cessation in our lung cancer patients, probably something that I think most of us at this point will say like, you know, the horse is out of the barn. So the article is called Post-Diagnosis Smoking Cessation and Reduced Risk for Lung Cancer Progression and Mortality, a prospective cohort study. It's from the Annals of Internal Medicine in 2021 from September. 
So a little bit of background information. Lung cancer is the leading cause of cancer death worldwide. Globally in 2018, 2.09 million people were diagnosed and 1.76 million people died with this condition. Non-small cell lung cancer accounts for 85% of all cases of lung cancer. Cigarette smoking is a major risk factor for this type of cancer, with 80% of patients having a history of smoking and 40-50% to of patients being active smokers at the time of diagnosis. Despite globally reducing rates of non-small cell lung cancer, diagnosis secondary to decreasing rates of tobacco use, especially in the developing world, five-year survival is still pretty dismal in patients with this condition. Evidence to date regarding the effects of tobacco cessation on prognosis after diagnosis is very limited and mainly originates from retrospective studies. So, John, do you ask your patients to quit smoking after you've diagnosed them with lung cancer? I'll be honest with you, um, in full transparency, probably before this article, I would say that out of the many things that occurred during that visit, that was definitely not probably priority number one for me. How about yourself, Sonia? No, I do not push smoking cessation after lung cancer diagnosis with my patients. Many want to quit smoking at that point. The cigarettes are just depressing and disgusting, and they're a constant reminder of why the patient has this cancer in the first place, and they don't like them, and family members hate to see them because they're so sad for their family member who has a lung cancer diagnosis. So a lot of patients would like to quit smoking, and sometimes I will bring it up if you'd like help quitting smoking. I have many resources for you, but it's not something I push, especially with a newer diagnosis of lung cancer. So I'm interested to hear what the evidence is behind whether we should do that or not. Yeah. So what's the clinical question? Basically, in this study, they tried to answer exactly that. For patients with diagnosis of lung cancer that smoked, compared to those that smoked, did the non-smokers, the smoking cessation patients actually live longer? So the population inclusion was newly diagnosed patients with early stage 1, 2, or 3A non-small cell lung carcinoma and smoked at the time of diagnosis. And they defined current smokers as one cigarette per day for more than a year. They excluded non-smokers, patients who were not followed actively regarding smoking behavior and disease status. The demographics, the mean age was 61.3. It was a male predominant with 88.5% of the patients being male. Most were non-university educated, so 66.3% did not go to higher education. Most actually did not have chronic disease, 66.3%, which I found amazing because in terms of smokers at age 61 to not have any other chronic disease diagnosis, I find that very alarming compared to my patient population. A little over half were current drinkers at 52.6%, and they had a high normal BMI of 24.9. There's an interesting difference in the baseline demographics. Patients who quit smoking during treatment, they were actually... Uh, less likely to currently drink, so 48.6 versus 55%, and were more likely to classify themselves as former drinkers. So it seems like, you know, one thing as the study goes forward, the group that actually self-selected to quit smoking actually also seemed to at some point probably have quit drinking as well. So probably a, a predisposition for healthier lifestyle changes. So the study design, it was a large multicentric prospective cohort study of patients with non-small cell lung cancer who were recruited between May 2007 and July 2016 from the Department of Thoracic Surgery and then Bloken National Medical Research Center of Oncology and City Clinical Oncological Hospital in Moscow, Russia. Participants were recruited after receiving a histological diagnosis, but before initiating any treatments. At enrollments, all participants underwent a personal interview where they got 
personal history, family history, medical history, exposure history, lifestyle habits, demographics. They also got anthropometric data was collected, including uh, BMI, all relevant medical imaging and pathology related to the patient's cancer diagnosis were reviewed and classified according to the seventh edition of the TNM classification system by the American Joint Commission on Cancer. And they had annual follow-up to assess vital status, tumor progression, events occurring after diagnosis, therapeutic procedures that had occurred, and whether or not they continued to smoke if applicable. Cohort follow-up was also linked to the National Cancer and Death Registries. So the, the patients were linked that if they died and they were lost to follow-up, but they did basically have a report to the death registry, that data was collected. And it was analyzed via this multivariate model, taking into account many different potential uh, differences in treatment course, including date of diagnosis. So do people that were diagnosed later in the study have access to newer treatments, tumor type, age, alcohol, smoking status? And the main uh, measures were probability of overall survival, progression-free survival, and lung cancer-specific mortality. So what do you think about how they uh, designed that study, Sonia? I think it was good. So just to make sure I understand, this is a study comparing a prospective cohort study, comparing people who quit smoking to people who didn't quit smoking after a diagnosis of lung cancer, non-small cell lung cancer. Correct. Yeah. I, one thing that was really surprising in this clinical question, and maybe it's because the patients are all from Russia where demographics are a little different, but that the mean age was 61 for diagnosis of lung cancer. I don't know what the lung cancer screening situation is like in Russia, but to me, that seems young. Hmm. That's interesting. I feel like my patients getting diagnosed with lung cancer are older. I guess I have to look at my... You're right. It does seem young, but I, I, I'm just saying that off of my gut reaction here. I, I don't have that data in front of me. And I do wonder if that's going to change with kind of lung cancer screening really kind of being more adapted in the United States. Right. That's what I thought right off the bat, that we're screening people for lung cancer at this point much more frequently. So we are catching it earlier. But yeah, I'm interested to hear the rest. Yeah. So I guess the first question is, is this trial valid? The sample size was moderate. There's 517 patients. 205 out of 722 that were initially included were excluded due to lack of active follow-up. So basically, these were not attending their yearly follow-ups for the data collection regarding their clinical course. It's a prospective cohort study, observational only, so there's no kind of intervention arm. There was a selection bias for the patients. Participants entered the trial between diagnosis and treatment. Demographics seem relatively well-matched. Data collection was self-report, so there was no uh, objective data to assess for smoking cessation compared to kind of some other trials that did basically urinary continine levels or some sort of objective measure uh, to let us know that they definitely were no longer smoking. Data was linked to the National Cancer and Death Registries for accuracy of data collection. I like the fact that it was done that way. Certainly, especially with patients with a range of cancers from stage 1 to 3A, you do worry about, are they just kind of not following up or are they, uh, have they passed away? And so to kind of close the loop on which ones are which was kind of useful. And I, I like the fact they do the multivariate analysis to account for all the secondary factors that can contribute that are unrelated to the primary areas of interest. So I thought overall, it was a pretty good study and I thought follow-up was good. Sample size was pretty decent. And I think that they did a good job trying to fill in all the gaps in terms of information. What do you think, Sonia? I thought it was good too. Of course, I wish it were a randomized controlled trial, but I think that would be unethical. I worry a little bit about the 200 patients who are excluded due to lack of follow-up because of course that group may have 
just more difficulty following up, more difficulty with healthy behaviors, perhaps more difficulty with smoking cessation. So I wonder if they excluded people who, I don't know, if the people excluded were somehow more sick than people who remained in the study and had good follow-up. I don't know exactly what direction that would bias the results, but I don't know if they did any kind of analysis of the people who didn't have follow-up to see if they were the same as the group of people who did stay in the study. Hmm. I don't have that off the top of my head. That's an interesting thought, though. So what are the results? And I'm going to say, spoiler alert, the group that quit smoking did way better. So substantially better to the point that I think most people that listen to this are probably going to change what they do here in this situation. So kind of in the first table, they had kind of two main tables. The first one was an association between quitting smoking, post-diagnosis, and outcomes among patients with early stage non-small cell lung cancer. And in terms of all-cause mortality, so far more people died in the group that continued smoking during the trial. So 204, which was 62.3% died. The group who quit smoking, only 123, which was 37.6% died. In terms of disease progression, in, in terms of disease progression and total deaths, you know, 216 patients and the patients who continued smoking had kind of disease progression of tumor recurrence or death, whereas only 126, which is 36.8%, had that in the patients who quit smoking. And in terms of lung cancer-specific mortality, 171 patients in the group that continued smoking died, which was 62.6%, and only 102, which is 37.3%, died in the group that quit smoking. So substantially different mortality rates, whether you look at all-cause mortality or cancer-specific or disease-related mortality, were much higher in the group that continued to smoke. Well, right. And it's not just a little higher. It's like almost double. It's really dramatic. Yeah. And then the next slide that goes through basically looks at survival time. And so, again, here, substantially different survival times. Median survival times, when you look at overall survival for patients who continued to smoke was 4.8 years versus people who quit smoking was 6.6 years. And when you look at adjusted progression-free survival, it was 3.9 years in the group that continued to smoke versus 5.7 years in the patients who quit smoking. And when you look at adjusted estimates of lung cancer-specific mortality, the median time to lung cancer-specific mortality was six years in the group that smoked versus 7.9 years in the group that quit smoking. And when you kind of look at this all together, what it really meant is that this group in the stage 1, 2, and 3A lung cancer with new diagnosis, that if you quit smoking, on average, you live 21.6 months longer than those that continue to smoke. And that, that's real time. That's almost two years of extended survival in this group. So... That's super impressive to me. Yeah, it is impressive. I Reading this, I do want to remind everyone and remind myself, of course, it's a prospective cohort study, so it just looks at correlation, not causation. And I know they match the groups at the beginning, but I wonder, I always would wonder if the group who didn't quit smoking were somehow sicker or closer to death. You know, if you think you've only got three months to live, there's really no point in quitting smoking if you want to keep going. I know they did try to match it at baseline, but I would think that something might have been different in the people who chose to quit smoking as opposed to people who chose, who, who did not or were not able to. Well, I think that too, you know, the one thing about the baseline demographics I brought up earlier, you know, it is interesting that the group that was more likely to quit smoking, they were also considered former drinkers. So probably there have some ability to kind of self-select. You know, we see that in other studies often where they'll do like a healthy adhere bias where they'll look at another variable associated with health, like statin use or or exercise. And so I think that you're right. There probably is an X factor there that's not totally captured. But I think overall, I mean, 
it's more substantial than I was expecting. Well, right. The difference is so huge. If it was just a few percentage points, I'd be more skeptical, but it's just, it's much bigger than any other treatment we have for lung cancer. Yeah, definitely. So kind of, will the results help me here with my patient care? I definitely think it will. You know, this study was performed in Russia, but actually baseline demographic mirror trends seen in U.S. smokers, but also smokers in my practice. You know, it's unfortunately several times per year that I have a cancer diagnosis discussion with a patient, often lung cancer, especially in smokers. So I have lots of opportunities to kind of implore counseling. Smoking cessation, it's always very inexpensive. It poses no threat or harm to a patient. I always joke with my resident physicians that if the answer is ever smoking cessation counseling or, or counseling a patient to do diet and exercise, that you can't go wrong with picking that answer to stop reading the rest of the question for a family medicine exam. And I'm going to be honest with you, like looking in the mirror, I'm guilty of avoiding this conversation. I think when we have this diagnosis of of lung cancer, oftentimes you're doing care coordination, you're setting up additional studies, getting PET scans, uh, often coordinating biopsy or kind of referral to thoracic surgery and medical oncology, uh, goals of care. I feel like smoking cessation is probably not a, a huge a part of that conversation, even if I spend an hour with a person. But you know what? It's going to be moving forward. I think another barrier to discussing smoking cessation at the time of cancer diagnosis for lung cancer is there's a lot of blame or self-blame. The patients blame themselves for smoking and for getting lung cancer. Family members blame them. There's a lot of shame, like this is your fault. And I try to reduce that shame, but I also don't want to make the patient feel bad. They already feel so bad. I don't want to kind of, as I would think of it, as like shove it in their face. Oh, and this is all your fault because you smoke. Let's, you know, why don't you quit smoking now? I just don't want anyone to feel that way. But with this data in hand, I can present it in a more blame-free way to say, hey, this is something that would really benefit you. You know, this is a this is a intervention that will give you more, not just months, but years of life. And I think it's really worth it. Yeah. I mean, I think exactly. I think it reframes the question, right? It's not a shaming question. At this point, we're talking about your treatment options. And certainly I'll be like, in terms of order of treatment, you know, if you're not a surgical candidate, like probably smoking cessation might might possibly give you more time than kind of even chemo radiation. So I think that, you know, incorporating that into the treatment plan is is really important. And I think going forward, I have, and since this article, and I, I'll continue to do that and make an effort to put that into a big part of the discussion. Actually, this article, not only did it change my personal practice, it started a relationship with one of our cancer groups who now it wants to do a quality improvement project on helping patients with lung cancer quit smoking. So the impact of this article is very broad. I hope the authors are proud of the work they did because I really think it will make a difference not just for individual doctors, but for cancer groups and cancer patients overall. Yeah, definitely. Well, I hope everyone took something away from that. I know I certainly did. Me too. Thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the articles included in a future episode, you can email us at addictionmedicinejournalclub at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at addictionmedjc. If you want to hear your comment in your own voice on the air, you can record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us. Our original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy, audio editing by Angela Olfest. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. 
Thank you for being part of the conversation and have a great day. Thank you.